What does it mean Messiah matters? It means apart from him we can do nothing. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeshua is the only way of salvation. He is everything. We have to have the Tanakh to know the Messiah. But we have to have the Messiah to know the Tanakh. Without Messiah, we have nothing. Basically, it's all about the Messiah. Wednesday, uh, February 28th, 2018. This is Messiah Matters number 208. Disturbing the peace in North Tacoma for 36 years. My name is Caleb Hegg. And from a place meaning children of the sun, yet wishing there was more of it right now. Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, man? Hola. How's it going? I'm happy. Good. I have a whole new light set up in here. Yeah, it looks you. You look more professional. I Thanks. look less professional. Well, you know, uh, Mister uh, Mister Steve, as my children call him, uh, has been in town, and so he he recorded the staff of Torah Resource, each one of us giving testimony, our testimony, how we came to the Messiah, and then how we uh, how we came to Torah, and so I took down my whole light thing, and uh, I got some good ideas from him as he was shooting it. And so uh, I tried to recreate some of what he did. I, it doesn't look nearly as nice as what he did, but it's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. All right. How you been, man? Happy pa- uh, Purim. Happy Purim. Happy Purim. Uh, for those who don't know, Purim is tonight. Not too far from Passover now, too. That's right. It is going to be a joyous festival tonight. Um, mm-hmm. It is the story of Esther, right? That's right. So good times will be had by all. Um, I, I suppose we probably should do more on Purim, but you know it's just not really you know it is what it is. They tried to kill us. God intervened. We won. Party. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to figure out if my mic's too hot. I think it is, but I'm. I'm still I'm still messing with it. Let me know in the uh, in the chat room if I'm if my mic's up too hot. Okay, um, so yeah, let's uh, let's I guess get right into it. Messiah Matters is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Torah Resource exists to provide biblically based education for disciples of Yeshua. And uh, so normally I try to tell people about something that you can find free or whatever on Torah Resource because there is a ton of free stuff. But uh, tomorrow. Thursday, uh, I will be uh, starting a live uh, series that will go up to Passover. Uh, It will be live on the Torah Resource Facebook page, and it will be live on the Messiah Matters YouTube page. And um, I will do it every week leading up to Passover, so five weeks. 
and it will be titled "What Really Happened in Egypt." Basically, what I'm going to do is I'm uh, so the, I'm part of a small group, and I've been writing notes for the small group on um, the ten plagues that happened in Egypt. And I figured, well, they're already written. Why not share them with everybody else too? And so uh, that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be reading those notes uh, and kind of discussing some of the things on um, on the live event. So 2 o'clock p.m. Pacific time, which would be 5 o'clock on the East Coast of the United States. Uh, join me. It'll be fun. I think. I hope. I, th I think it'll be good. I think people will learn something. At least we really hope so. And uh, for those in the chat room, if you're in the chat room, uh, Mr. Michael has just posted a link that uh, you can uh, ask for a reminder. So tomorrow it will... It will uh, let you know. And keep going back to the Torah Resource Facebook page um, each week, and you can click the reminder, and it will let you know when we go live. All right. Um, and Messiah Matters, that's this show, is also brought to you by the generous support of our listeners. Um, without the support of people, we would not be able to do this show, and we would not be able to run Torah Resource, which is a full-time ministry. Uh, we have five full-time employees and uh, one part-time employee, and... Uh, yeah, so if you like this show, consider uh, you know, consider throwing a couple of bucks into the uh, into the old offering box if you know what I mean. Um, you can do that by going to torresource.com and clicking on the donate button. And if you do that, let us know uh, in the comments of your order to uh, that you're listening to Messiah Matters because we actually really appreciate that. Okay, so um, what should we do first? I suppose we could do the listener question first, right? We got a listener question uh, okay. sent in to us by, uh, well, I forget what his name was, and I actually cut it off in the beginning of this clip, but um, he left us uh, something. Oh, uh, well, let's do that first, right? Let's uh, tell everybody. I got two computers and two mouses. This is very confusing. Let's tell everybody how they can get a hold of us. Uh, you can give us a call on the comment line, which people have been doing, which is really fun and really nice. 253-465-3205. I'll give it to you again. It's 253 465-3205. You can also send us emails, chag at torahresource.com. That's chag at torahresource.com, C-H-E-G-G. -G. All right. Um, so with all that out of the way, so somebody sent this into our comment line, and this is what they said. I got a, I got a question, though. Um, so this regards to 1 Corinthians 10, and uh, Paul makes a comment in there saying, if you go to get invited to a home of an unbeliever, then just uh, eat whatever is offered to you, uh, no matter without conscience. Now, my question is that is, I know the context of uh, meat offered to, to idols, but if it's an unbeliever, would they have ever offered them food that's not kosher? And then Paul's saying, eat that too. But it, that seems contradictory because I know Paul's not anti-Torah. Uh, so I just have had some Christian friends bring that up, and I was just curious if you guys could touch on that First uh, Corinthians 10 passage. I uh, appreciate it. Okay, so he's talking about First Corinthians 10, 25 through 28. I'll read it for everyone. Reading out of the NASB, Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who is, uh, informed you and for conscience' sake. Okay, so the question is obviously, 
you go, go to an unbeliever's house and they put meat in front of you. Uh, obviously, our caller knows that this is in the context of meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul it makes that obvious, right? It's very obvious in the, uh, in the context and even in, in the passage I just read. Uh, if a person says to you, this meat is meat sacrificed to idols. Okay, so there's s- several points that I would make. First of all, you know, we have the same kind of thing. There's been cults and whatnot that uh, have have uh, tried to do evangelism uh, through, um, well, I want to be careful in case there's little ears, but through um, prostitution and, and uh, other things like that, right? Um, there's, uh, it, this is not a, in other words, sinning in order to give the gospel, uh, is never, is never acceptable. Right. Um, and is it a sin to eat pork? Yes, it is. Or unkosher food. Yes, it is. The Bible is, says it, we're not supposed to do that. Um, but even more so he says food. Mm. I think it's, uh, I, I can't imagine any first century, observant Jew of any Jewish sect associating unkosher food with food. In other words, a first century a first century observant Jew, in my mind, would no more think of pork as food or shellfish as food as he would if his grandmother died uh, and he decided, you know, oh, before, before we bury her, let's, you know, let's take a, let's take a thigh. I mean, right? That's repulsive and disgusting, and no one would do it. And in the same way, uh, unkosher food would be thought of the same way. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, no, I I agree. There there's a couple things textually um, to talk about here. So, you know, things sold in the marketplace, right? Um, so. I'm assuming that the pro, uh, that they're saying that Paul is saying that f- the food sold. We're talking about meat here, right? We're not talking about vegetables. <clears throat> I think we're talking about animal meat, right? right? I think we probably agree on that at least. Um, that if it's being sold, particularly in this marketplace, in the, in the machalan, that it probably that, that that means it's not, uh, by definition, meat that is being consumed as part of cultic um, gathering, right? Because he says you can't eat at a table of, don't eat at a table of demons, right? Uh, right. Well, what does um, that mean? You can't yeah. participate in a table of demons. Yeah, we've, we've talked uh, about this before. Hmm. Right. And, and I think that that means actually participating in the... In the meal of uh, of a a celebration to another god, right? In other words, you can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And back to verse twenty eight. Then, if well, here's the thing: if an unbeliever inviting you, why is the un- uh, why is the unbeliever inviting you? Are they is is my interpretation of this is this is someone who's interested. They they respect what you're about. In other words, if Paul, if an unbeliever invited Paul, it's not like Paul's just hanging out at a 
at the local pub and a guy comes up and says, hey, hey you, want you, look like a, you look like a ball of fun. We're having a big get, get together. Why don't you just join us? Right. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about someone who knows what you're about. Right. right? And they respect it and they want to hear more. Right. If this if if this meeting is not for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, then that why that's why are you going to go to someone you don't know who's not a believer and they just happen to invite you, but it's not for the advancement of Yeshua's message? Uh, I would question that. So I would say the presumption is in that if they know what you're about, they're probably going to be hospitable. And what that means is there's a general Mediterranean kind of culture, I believe, of hospitality. Sometimes that hospitality was like, hey, you invite me to your place and then we'll, I'll expect, uh, or you're going to expect me to invite you back and we're, we'll have this kind of uh, uh, reciprocal kind of family or communal kind of relationships. But this is something that's breaking that. This is out of the normal. This is an outsider inviting you. And I believe that these people are mission-minded, the Corinthian church here, and they're seeing this as an opportunity um, to expand the word, uh, you know, bring the word of Messiah to other people. And that that's their core, that they're mission-minded. In other words, that's their core orientation. And so I think that's going to be up front, and it's going to be respected. Now, but he says then, if someone says to you in verse uh, 28, this meat sacrifice to idols. This is an interesting word. It's there's. It's not the normal word for meat sacrifice to idols. It's the hierathuton, which is sacrificed to a deity or to a temple. It's got the word hieros in it, like sacred. So technically the word idol is not here. We, the other one has the word idol in it. Idol slaughters, slaughtered. This is like temple slaughtered. So, um, just a, that's just a textual footnote. Well, but, something something but, about that right there is that, you know, if he if kosher food is is an issue here, then why doesn't he say uh, somebody says to you this is meat sacrificed to idols or says this is unkosher food? He's worried about a person's about what other people uh, what other believers would think when it comes to food sacrificed to idols, but you don't think that. We should worry about what other believers would think in terms of kosher food. The idea that all of a sudden uh, Christ dies on the cross, and then the next day, all of all of believing Judaism, you know, all of the Messianics say, "Hey, you know what? Christ did away with the law. Let's not eat kosher anymore. Let's not celebrate the right. festivals." That's nonsense. It's that is simply not the right. way it happened. And so the idea that that Paul would would uh, all of a sudden pull away from that is not only there's no evidence of it, and we even see that there's evidence against it, right? Acts right. 21, when he when they uh, when he goes to the temple to prove that he's not speaking against circumcision or keeping the law. Yeah. Anyway, I, ho- I hope that that well, answers it, it the goes, question. It, one last point. He goes on to say, whatever you eat and drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Then what does he say? Give no offense either to... Jews or to Greeks or to right. the Ecclesia of Elohim. So, <laughs> yeah, I think he's he's 
being gentle. Here's Paul talks this way in First Corinthians. He does the same thing when he's asking for money. He never comes out and asks for money. But he'll say, these guys blessed me, you know, from Macedonia. And, and you know, he he's wants, back to Galatians, he, he's laboring for the spirit of Messiah to, to take root and spring up in the lives of these people so that their, their worship of God, their love for their neighbor springs from their, is real genuine fruit of, right. of the Ruach in their life. And that the, the desire to walk in God's ways is not a compulsion from an external fear or threat, but that is literally the work of God in their hearts coming forth, producing fruit. That means it's their idea, right? That's right. what he's, he's, Paul is so gentle and careful because he knows what the compelling, that force culture is like because that's what he grew up in he grew up at the pharisee they were compelling people to be circumcised they're they're forcing this you know and under threat so people's religious behavior how do you know on the outside it's if you have this this kind of threat bully um posse of 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 you know zealous jews and everybody's afraid of them who's the pharisees are coming the pharisees are coming Who's yeah? Well, even Peter, we know that Peter Peter's behavior shook in Antioch right. when the the bullies from Jerusalem showed up. All of a sudden, he's like, "What do I do? What do I do? I got to change what I'm doing." Okay, Paul's he wants to eliminate this outer compulsion, and so his guidance needs to be understood in that regard. He wants, because it's the terms, it's not even his own, he's not doing this because he's a clever teacher. He's doing it because he understands the terms of the new covenant, the right. terms of the Brit Hadashah, is that God writes it on the heart. And so he'll say, I water, you know, Apollo, or I plant, Apollos waters, God gives the increase. And Paul's going to say, if, the in, if any increase that doesn't come from God working in the heart of believers, he doesn't want, he's not interested in that. And so he's, he's, toy, he's, preparing the ground, he's getting rid of the rocks, he's pulling the weeds, but he's going to let let God give the increase. Right. Okay, good. I hope that that, that answers the question satisfactorily. Um, yeah, okay. Good question, yeah. <clears throat> that was a good question. So, <clears throat> pardon me. I In pre- preparation for Passover, now, in years past, I've always spent Passover with my parents, right, at my parents' house. My parents, it's a, it's a huge ordeal, right? I mean, I'm, you know, Passover is by far my favorite holiday, American you mean as or your family, biblical. As your family gets bigger kind of thing? Well, you know, my parents have always—Passover has always been a big event for us, right? It was a huge dinner. Um, the congregation that I'm a part of— I uh, used to do a community seder, and that was a big event too. The community put it on. Tickets were sold. We had it at the officers' club at Fort uh, at Fort Lewis um, back in the day, and uh, you know it was fully catered. It was it was really very nice, but there was always something that went wrong. You know, I, 
the crouton fiasco one year uh, when the uh, chef accidentally put <laughs> croutons in the in the salad. I mean, these are the kind of things that, yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like the fish is all, or whatever, the food's all served, and they're like, uh, we just discovered <laughs> yeah, exactly. that this is lobster salad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we just discovered uh, that it's real bacon. Yeah. So basically, oh, what, what's that's, that's uh, that's comical. That's what that the is. The leadership at the uh, yeah, Gary, Gary in the chat room memories. Um, uh, leadership, <laughs> leadership at the community. You gotta decided, love it. You gotta love it. It's it's all part of being you know being in community. Um, leadership decided that we should do home home seders, and and everybody was happy to do that. I think. And so now, um, the congregation is basically if you don't have somewhere to go, you put your name on a list, and then uh, you know there's all, there's just tons of houses that host. Um, satyrs. And uh, depending on, I wonder if I have it here, you know, uh, somebody in, in our community produced this. It's this little booklet. booklet. It's a Haggadah. Um, and, you know, it's pretty standard, pretty traditional. Yeshua's kind of uh, uh, put as center in there. My family always just used an Orthodox Haggadah. And for those who don't know, a Haggadah is, a, uh, is, is the order of, of service. For a Passover Seder, this is the one that my uh, my family used for years. I, I think that they're actually moving away from this now. Anyway, um, you know, my mom has like 20, 23 people, something like that, at, at her house for for Passover. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of people. And uh, well, you know, we we started a small group, and our uh, small group nobody had anywhere to go for for Passover, and so my wife and I decided, well, let's do Passover at our house. So that's what we decided to do. I think we have about 20 people coming to our house, which our house is not equipped. It is not big enough to have 20 people um, in it for any kind of party, but we're going to do it anyway. Not the point. Um, so uh, me and a couple other people decided, hey, you know what? Actually, Adam Smith is one of them. Um, we decided, hey, let's not just do a traditional Haggadah. And as I've been studying the Passover, as I've been studying um, the Last Supper, I started to realize in my studies that a lot of what I used to, the preconceived notions or the notions that I had about the Last Supper and what Yeshua was doing was not, in fact, uh, how should I say this? Maybe it was, uh, it was taken as tradition after the first century. And wasn't necessarily set tradition in the in the in the first century. Let me explain what I mean. Okay, for instance, um, I I've found a couple of books that will tell you. Okay, um, in Luke twenty two, it seems like Yeshua has two cups. Right, there's the first cup. Right, and then he and then he breaks bread, and then he there's a second cup. And so the question: Why is there two cups in Luke, but there's only one cup? in the other synoptic gospels. And a lot of, especially messianics, right? Especially messianics. What they'll do is, that, but not just messianics, you know, uh, Daryl Bach is, is a person who uh, puts forward this, this idea. The idea is that, oh, well, you know, there's four cups in the Passover Haggadah. There's four, four traditional cups, ceremonial cups that you drink during the uh, Passover celebration. And, this was either two of the four cups or it was an infant stage of the four cups. 
So that's, you know, and so we see the Haggadah already in the first century. And I think that a lot of people, my father's written uh, this before as well, and he's going to have to go back and change this now. Um, but the the fact of the matter is, is that no, m- more than likely what uh, was going on is that the Mishnah written 250, 300 years later uh, is now incorporating customs from uh, the Greco-Roman banquets into the Mishnah. And this was a huge shocker to me. You know, the idea that uh, every time we uh, would recline at table at the, uh, you know, oh, we're supposed to lean on one arm during the Passover Seder. Um, I, we just thought, oh, well, you, you know, this is what Yeshua was doing because it was part of the Passover Seder. Well, no, uh, laying down during meals was something that we see throughout the Gospels, not just a Passover. And uh, come to find out, uh, triclinium were uh, three-sided banquet seating that was not seating, it was laying down. And that was very common in Greco-Roman. It had nothing to do with Passover. Uh, it was just Greco-Roman banquets in general. That's what they did. And so this was not part of a Passover tradition in the first century. All these kind of things, um, you know, the idea that Yeshua dips in the Gospels. Once again, this is uh, this most likely had nothing to do with dipping bitter herbs uh, at the Passover meal. That was much later uh, incorporated into the Haggadah. And so all these kind of revelations, as I've been studying the Passover and studying the Last Supper, have really kind of jolted my understanding of the Haggadah. And so uh, the small group that I'm a part of, we decided, you know what, why don't we make our own Haggadah? And so that's what I've been doing for the past two days. I sat down and I uh, decided to put together my own Haggadah. And uh, in total, it's uh, it's 22 pages, which is nothing compared to, I mean, I think this one is probably, what, 100 at least? Yeah, 100 pages. Um, We're going to sit down and read a 100-page book over dinner tonight. <laughs> Yeah, that's what happens. That's a a lot, yeah. Well, we wanted the, so in my small group, and I know this really doesn't have to do with what we're talking about, but in my small group, we want, you know, we have small kids and we we wanted the first portion to be anywhere from, uh, you know, less than 45 minutes, 45 minutes or less. And so then the question is, okay, well, what do you take out that's not going to tick everybody off? You know, some people are used to the traditional Haggadah. They're expecting four cups. They're expecting, you know, the the four different kinds of children. And as you start to study some of these uh, scholars, like Israel Yuval, who's a, a Jewish scholar, he shows that uh, some very interesting things. <clears throat> he shows that one of them, one of the, um, that there's a possibility that the fourth child <clears throat> is actually a slam against Christians. In other words, this is being formed after the destruction of the temple. And... Um, and now they're responding to Christianity. And basically, Ernest says, a great idea, Caleb. I want a copy. If you would like a copy of the Haggadah that I have created, <clears throat> hey, let, let me, uh, hang on just a sec. Let me, let me mute myself real quick. Then I would be happy to give you a copy of it. However, I should say that it is going to deviate quite extensively from what um, people might be used to. Um, in in a Passover Haggadah. Email me. I would be happy to give you one. Seahaggatorresource.com uh, Okay. Um, so one of the things that I found to be very interesting, and, and jump in here at any time, Rob, because, uh, yeah, I know I've been talking now for a long time. 
trying to set this up a little bit. One of the things that I thought was extremely interesting was the idea of the afikoman. Now, when we when we sit down at table, you know, we have the 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 matzah there, and um, if you're in a messianic home, you're always going to hear, "Look at the matzah; it's striped, it's pierced, just like the Messiah was striped and pierced, right?" And uh, and for the mission, anti missionaries, the the non believing Jews, they'll say, "Oh, the Christians." You know, we've been making matzah like that forever. It's, it has nothing to do with Christ. It, you know, it has nothing to do. They're just putting meaning into whatever. Well, then there's the question of afikoman, and the um, actually, let me get out, get it out here. This was so interesting to me, and I started. I kind of went down this uh, this rabbit trail yesterday, and uh, and started looking for for uh, proof of this, and actually. There's some pretty good proof of this. Um, okay, I'm going to read just a little bit out of out of Israel Yuval's uh, um, work here, if I can. Oh, if I can. Sorry. Give me just a second. Uh, if I had some music, I would. How do I rotate this? Rotate right. Okay, there we go. And okay, the assumption. This is from Israel Yuval's article. You can this uh, a reference to this can be found also in your show notes for those who get the show notes. The assumption that the Haggadah was composed in part with an eye to excluding Christian heretics explains also the image of the wicked son in the four sons narrative. Our Haggadah presents the wicked son as asking, "What does this service mean to you?" By throwing into question the laws and commandments, say our text, he excludes himself from the community and denies the foundation of our faith. A description that suits the Jewish Christian very well. We therefore see, a, but keep in mind, by the way, that this is Israel Yuval, who is not a believer. If I, I'm correct in that, right? Israel Yuval is a Jewish scholar, right? Yeah, at Hebrew University, he's a scholar of uh, Jewish history. I, I can't imagine the, the flack he got on writing this. Anyway, we therefore see a new meaning to the answer that is assigned to the wise son, or to the foolish son, according to the Yerushalami. It cites Mishnah Pesachim 10.8. Uh, and then he, Ein mafterin achar hapesach afikomen. Sorry, he uh, he uh, transliterated it instead of giving you the real uh, Hebrew. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's, 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 that's from the Mishnah. Right. It says they don't finish the Passover with afikomen. And this is this afikomen is not a word used anywhere in in the Mishnah or other early rabbinic works it's um, it's a Greek word right I mean that's the the argument that you've all this is not a Hebrew term right right it's a and Greek it's, it's a Greek, a Greek term. word yeah now it's that's not it's so sensational in itself there's hundreds and hundreds there's like at least probably 400 I think Greek words peppered throughout the Mishnah itself Right. So, so the presence of a Greek or Latin word in the Mishnah. Now, of course, it's spelled in Hebrew letters. I mean, but that's in itself not what is uh, of note here. What's of note here is that this is its only appearance, and there are others that only appear once too. So, but um, that what's it doing? What's this Greek term doing in the description of the Passover meal of what's not acceptable? Right in terms of the Mishnah, this is something that's um, they're saying is not acceptable. Right. 
Okay, so um, so he goes on. So the, so basically, the question is, uh, M- M- Mishnah Pesachim 10.8, what does this mean? One may not conclude the Paschal Lamb with, or the Passover, with Afikomen. Which is interesting because how do you conclude the, the Passover? You find the Afikomen and that's the last thing you eat, right? That's what you conclude with. So what, is, what does the Mishnah mean by this? Uh, and Yuval goes on. In order to understand this cryptic remark, we must observe how Melito used the word. This is Melito of Sardis. Um, how Melito used the word afikomenos, meaning coming, in order to describe the incarnation and passion of Jesus. It is he who is coming from heaven to earth. Uh, Melito describes the afikomen of Yeshua immediately after this sermon about the Passover being symbol for him, thus completing his symbolic treatment of the pa- uh, Pesach, Matzah, and Maror, paralleling the sermon of Rabban Gamliel. In other words, so then what I did was I started looking into, okay, first of all, when is Melito of Sardis? And the answer is he wrote um, uh, on Pascha uh, in, uh, in 170. So this is long before the Mishnah comes out, right? So basically the first – and if you go to any Jewish website, they're going to tell you that uh, the first reference that we have to the Afikomen is in the Mishnah. That is not true. The the first reference we have of the Afikomen is associated with Yeshua by Melito of Sardis. What's interesting to me is that as we start to look at Judaism through the ages, I think that what can be observed, I personally believe this, and uh, you know, people can challenge me on this, but I think that what Judaism oftentimes does is if something is becoming prevalent, not in Judaism, but is becoming prevalent in the surrounding culture, they take it and they say they had it first. We can see this in modern Judaism, right? In modern Judaism, the idea of the tzaddik, well, the whole theology of the tzaddik is essentially Christianity. It's the theology of what Yeshua does in the in the heaven, heavenly tabernacle, just put on their own rabbis. They didn't make anything new up. They took something that was uh, becoming very, very prevalent within Christianity or, around them. You know, there's another... <laughs> Another example of this that's aside is Josephus tells the story of Vespasian and how Vespasian came and um, Josephus, I think it was Josephus himself, told Vespasian that he would be emperor of Rome. And then it came true. Right. And there's there's a little story here. Um then later in rabbinic world, the story's told as it's uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai, who is in a besieged Jerusalem. They get him out of the city, and he meets Vespasian, and he tells him, "You're going to be <laughs> at Rome." I mean, there's there's all these elements that it's the same story, but the names were changed to bring like honor and legitimacy in, in to the rabbinic genealogy of sages. Rather than and Josephus is is wiped out of it. So, so you you encounter that and you're like, well, Josephus is earlier. We know about his historical situation. Um, 
and then we know the later rabbis are, are retelling the stories. Um, and it's an example. So this would, this is not, uh, it's not strange that, and this is what happens with oral tradition, oral tradition, the big important elements get transmitted, but the names and things will change to fit the audience at, at the new historical moment. Um, so any event, Anyway, so, what, the, the, what the, you're saying is that is that Melito used this term, and it probably had some some what the argument is this uh, 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 this Greek term concerning Yeshua relating to the Passover, and it had distribution right beyond Melito's book. Right, there were probably Christians that thought in these terms and probably were interacting with Jews in the Holy Land, for example. And then um, the rabbis had to respond to it. I think it's they had even, to make I, sure. I think it's even more than that, though. Okay. Because I think what you have, you know, what, so um, Rob sent me some questions that he thought would be good to look at uh, leading up to Passover. These are also in your show notes. Uh, let's see here. Uh, the first one. How or when did the Lord's Supper become disassociated from Pesach or Passover? And the second one, how and when did Easter become separated from Passover? So both these questions, in my mind, happen right around the same time. Now, you do start to see this this parting, okay? And by the mid-2nd century, you have people talking about uh, the uh, beginning to talk about the institution of Passover. And right around this same time, there's actually a lot historically that's going on at this time in terms of this, but we know uh, from Eusebius that the Jerusalem church or ecclesia of believers was still celebrating Passover. And Polycarp gets up, you know, Polycarp is talking about um, is talking about how he had Passover with with the Apostle John, and um, this is where the whole Quatrdeciman uh, controversy comes from. The Quatrdeciman controversy, I think, has been misunderstood by many scholars. There are a couple of scholars who I think have finally started to get it right, but the idea was not whether or not you uh, you fast on. Um, Nissan 14 or Nissan 15, or if you do it on Easter, that was not the, in my opinion, that was not the, uh, the, the controversy. However, it did spark the, the church infighting. I use church as, uh, you know, the ecclesia, the, the believers infighting. And, uh, this is where you, this is really where Rome decides, you know, they have these, they have these, uh, debates and whatnot. And finally they decide that they're going to fix the celebration of the resurrection of Christ on a Sunday. And it's, and it's not going to coincide with Passover. And the reason it's not going to coincide with Passover is because they don't want, you know, you have this debate going on within the church fathers too, whether or not, okay, now that the, now that Christ has died on the cross, is it just that you we don't have to celebrate, we don't have to keep the Torah anymore, or is that we shouldn't keep the Torah anymore? And this is a debate that's actually going on. The debate over Passover and Easter is really one of the uh, it's really one of the deciding factors in this. 
and the church decides, okay, we're going to have it on 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 a Sunday, and it's not going to coincide with with the Passover. Now it can be during the Passover, but it's not going to coincide with Nisan fourteen. And so this is where you get the fixed date of of Easter in the in the church, in the Western Church. Now, uh, and interestingly, they say don't be don't. They send something to the to the church in Jerusalem to the believers in Jerusalem. They say stop celebrating the Passover. We'll send you something different instead. What is it that they sent them instead? It's a very interesting, something that a lot of people have not picked up on. I think that they sent them what they thought was now a, a established, instituted Holy Eucharist. When I say Eucharist, I mean communion. And this is different than the meals that they were having before, the agape meals and, and other things. This is now a set communion. That's what I believe. Thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, we have to to kind of connect dots between the Last Supper that you know that we read about at the end of the Gospels, uh, synoptics, and then what you're talking about in the fourth century, fourth fifth century, um, and say, okay, well, how did we get from point A to point B? And I think that um, it we have evidence that that shows believers in Yeshua, at least a stream or two of them, continued to keep a Nisan 14 Passover. And we don't have any reason to think that they did not um, rehearse the text traditions, such as we find in Luke or in 1 Corinthians 11, as part of their meal. In other words, I... I just think to imagine uh, a Nissan 14 Passover celebration by believers anywhere in the first through second and third centuries that did not rehearse Yeshua as the Pascha, right? Right. As the Pesach lamb, as uh, the the new covenant, the, you know, what's the new covenant about? What is the uh, forgiveness of sin? You know, and, and proclaiming his death, like Paul says, proclaiming his death until he comes, that there's a, an anticipation of redemption, ultimate redemption, that is built into the story of the meal. In other words, you have a, a, a rehearsed group solidarity story that's being rehearsed. And, um, and so that's I, where people see their, it's their highest value. I agree. It's, it's that it's, they're, they're rehearsing and discussing and meditating upon their highest values that they have. And that's going to have echoes out to other Jewish groups that are going, oh, well, so should I do it that way? Or do, am I part of that story or not? Right. So one of the things, one of the things that I, I should stress is that in the first century, we don't have any evidence that there was a set Passover tradition. Each community had different tradition. And as, as the Christians now are centering in on Yeshua as the Passover lamb and, and associating all these things with Yeshua, they're starting to have set tradition. We see this already in, in like 60, 70 when Luke writes, because there's liturgical tradition that we see within his story. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul has the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11. And so Christians, Christians or believers or whatever you want to uh, title them, were celebrating Passover all the way up until the second half of the second century. And 
when the Mishnah is written, it's what I think happens is now they are taking pieces of what the Christians have already done and pieces of what they've done, but now they're solidifying it and they're saying we had it first. They're trying to disassociate it from Christianity. I want to go back real quick uh, to what uh, is being said in the chat room. This is a good comment from Gary. Um, he says, uh, while I appreciate the scholarly approach to this discussion, I'm also concerned that it disempowers people. Let me explain. As we approach Passover, I would like to see more hosts a Seder in their own homes. I think that this is actually more what is going on in the Passover text than, and we see this even in the first century, than having group Seders. In other words, you were supposed to have a lamb for every 10 10 people essentially or you know and if and if uh, there weren't enough people in your home you were supposed to have your neighbor right and then even in Yeshua's time uh you go to the temple you have it slaughtered where do you go you take it back to the house you don't you don't you know it's not one huge group event each person has a seder in their own home and i think that this is really more how it was set up to be um which means someone is going to have to take the lead i agree a Haggadah rewrite is within that any leader's prerogative uh, is within any leader's prerogative, I, I think is what he meant. But most people are afraid of doing something wrong, so they are less likely to even do it at all. Am I making sense? Yes. And I agree. I think that I think like, this should be said straight away about Passover. What is and we've talked I think we said this last week, too. What is required at Passover, to keep the Passover. I have identified what I think are the three main things. There are some other things, right? You're supposed to have the lamb roasted in bitter herbs. You're supposed to eat matzah. And you're supposed to observe the two Sabbaths that are associated with Passover. We could also add in there that you are uh, required to eat bitter herbs with matzah. However, I think that that's, that's a technical issue. We could We could talk about that. So if that is the case, you know, we have, we can have bitter herbs, we can have matzah, we can rest on the Shabbat. So what are we missing? The only other thing we're missing is the lamb. But as believers in the Messiah Yeshua, we're not missing the lamb. The lamb is present at our table. Yeshua is the Passover lamb. Paul tells us that, right? And Yeshua is with us at our Passover table. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So our Passover lamb is physically present at our table. And beyond that, his blood has been spilled against the, off, uh, the, the altar in the heavenly places. We as believers are able to fulfill the, the, the Passover completely. Unbelieving Jews, it's like a curse. They can't, they can't celebrate the, the Passover uh, fully. So the point is, is that beyond that, you can do whatever you want. If you want to have four cups, have four cups. If you don't want to have four cups, don't have four cups. In the in the thing that I just wrote, we have two cups, one at the beginning of the meal and one at the beginning of the, you know, after the meal's over, we say another, uh, we have another cup. But that's because uh, that's what I see in Luke. So there's a lot of wiggle room Um. Basically, it's up to what we want. If we would just want to bow our heads and pray and say, Lord, this is the Passover that uh, that you have commanded, and we do it in honor of our Messiah Yeshua, guess what? Fulfilled. 
that's my that is my uh, understanding of it. Your thoughts, Rob? Well, what's the what's the alternative? The alternative view is, I mean, you know, I was just talking to somebody the other day who um, had, uh, you know, knew of a messianic community that has basically gone to look at only Jewish sources because uh, under the idea that the rabbis preserve the traditions of as God wanted wants them. Right. And if you take that approach, if that's your filtration system, then why would you even, you, A, you're not going to have any mention of Yeshua in the meal, right? If you go with the traditional Passover Seder, you're not going to have any mention of, of Yeshua or his suffering and death, the gospel, any, there is no um, declaration of, of his death until he comes, as Paul says. There's no mention of the Brit Hadashah and the forgiveness of sins, right? You, you don't have any of that stuff. And so, um, so what, what we're talking about kind of is a scale, right? Where those are the extreme end points and that people are, are going to, um, be somewhere in between where they're drawing on tradition that has much beautiful, uh, uh, practice and can be very meaningful and has a lot of scripture in it. And so, so they're going to come down on that scale somewhere between those extremes. And I think as, as we grow and learn and, and, um, mature, I think we're going to, we'll probably change a little bit, just like you shared, Caleb, you shared your, a little bit of your own history and kind of how you've moved that needle has moved a little bit on that, on that continuum. Right. But we're, we're definitely, um, kind of asserting, you know, that believers in Yeshua have very specific things that that are part of the Passover, the Pesach celebration. And uh, that it's hard to imagine a believer in Yeshua participating in a Pesach that either it's forbidden or it just is not mentioned at all. You know, nothing of the Gospels mentioned at all. That's like to be like, wow, okay, uh, what are you doing? Are you playing religion? Does it? What's the meaning for you? Right. In other words, do we have meaning? Is it possible? Here's another way to ask the question: Is it possible for believers in Yeshua to to think about Passover without Yeshua, apart from Yeshua? I mean, is that is it is there is there spiritual profit or benefit from that? Um. So it, it seems like that for the apostles and Paul, they didn't they they thought of Yeshua and and Pesach as inextricably forever bound together in in a historical events and then the the meaning and, and spiritual and ultimate redemptive um, uh, implications of those events, right? There's no going back, right. There is a comment that I would like to address in the uh, chat room. Someone says, I am of the opinion that there should be more separation between Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Somebody says, uh, what do you mean? She says, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is after the day of Passover. Are they not separate commands? Um, so That's good. I, uh, I, Petri I, uh, gets into that in def defining what is Pascha. Go ahead, Caleb. 
Right. Oh, well, no, I was just going to say that uh, this is, um, I, I understand why that could be argued from the Torah text, uh, because it seems like uh, there is something that said, uh, you know, the Passover, and then it seems like the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, is talked about separately, or it could it could be interpreted that way. However, by the time we come to the first century, um, Yeshua and the disciples certainly do not uh, separate the two. In fact, they 100% associate the two together as one festival. They say, uh, I, I believe it's Luke says, and the Pascha was, uh, was uh, coming, uh, which is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So in other words, they're interchanging the word Pascha. Yeah, and, the Pascha has some flexibility. That's uh, right. our, uh, our Dr. Brant Petrie interview covers, I think, the, some of the different usages. But, if, but one of the meanings, and that's, that's a good question, because one of the meanings of Pascha is just the meal, right? It's, it could be the lamb specifically. It could be the, the specific meal that's at the end of the 14th transitioning into the 15th. So uh, another question. See, the the thing about uh, the Passover and and celebrating Passover, there are so many questions. Um, Peter says, my understanding is that the Passover is the sacrifice, but can be used in context interchangeably as the whole week, the prep day before the first holiday, etc. Maybe Rob elaborate. The uh, there is Petrie, Dr. Petrie in his book, which is fantastic, by the way. I know that he's Roman Catholic, but his work on, on the chronology of the Passion is, is uh, right in line with, uh, with what my father wrote uh, as well. Um, and so uh, he identifies four Passover, like four definitions for the word Passover or Pascha. I, in, in uh, what I've been writing, I try to identify a fifth uh, a fifth one. And um, anyway, yeah. So yes, there are four, I believe that there are four, um, four or five uh, definitions for the word Pascha. Whether or not the 14th, I don't think the 14th is necessarily, uh, well, yeah, that that's debatable. That is debatable, whether or not the 14th is included in the word Pascha. Here, here's one way that we could understand it by using a biblical term. The word is chag, chag, which is the word for feast. Uh, and if we just look at the book of Exodus, Exodus 12, 14, it says, you shall celebrate this as uh, this day shall, shall be a, z- a zikaron, a memorial. Um, and then it says a chag ladonai, a feast, a permanent or a hukat olam. This is uh, Exodus twelve fourteen. It's talking about the the Passover rite, right? This is eating the meal. This is Exodus twelve. It says Hayom uh, Hazeh this day, but then it in thirteen Exodus thirteen six it says Shivat Yamim Tochal Matzot. So seven days you will eat Matzot. Uvayom Hashvi Chag LaAdonai, and on the seventh day Chag LaAdonai. So you have Chag for Hayom Hazeh. It says in 1214, Hag for Hayom Hashvi'i, the seventh day on in 13.6. And then Exodus 23.15, at Hag HaMatzot Tishmuru Shivat Yamim. That means the Hag of Matzot you will keep for seven days. So we have Hag 
this is just, we're, we're not even looking at translations. We're not looking at different books of the Bible. We're looking just at the book of Shemot and the use of Chag to, to distinguish the Passover, right? The seventh day. And then it's called Chag HaMatzot, the whole thing. So the word Chag even has unique uh, application in these different contexts. It's all generally under the big umbrella talking about this spring feast, right? Um, but it's using it specifically for the first day, for the seventh day, and then for all seven days. So words can have this flexibility, and uh, um, that's that's an important aspect of our uh, hermeneutic, right? That we understand we need to look at context and understand that words have uh, flexibility. They have semantic ranges, and um, comparing Scripture with Scripture will help us kind of see and get a sense of those semantic ranges. So uh, should we even try to do another? I know we've, uh, we're coming down to— I got a book uh, review. We could wrap up oh, with my book yeah, review. Oh, yeah, do a book review. Let's, let's hear it. I'm glad I chose this book because when I chose this book, I was not thinking about— um, I was just honestly, I was like, oh, I forgot I, I have a book review today. And I was just go, going through my like looking and grabbed a book. Um, this book was written in. in well, it's English translation is 1995, written in Hebrew by Menachem Hirschman, who goes by Mark Hirschman, M.A.R.C. He's a professor in he's been at a couple uh Hebrew, Hebrew University had a couple Israeli uh, institutions. It's called A Rivalry of Genius, Jewish and Christian Biblical Interpretation in Late Antiquity, translated from Hebrew by Batya Stein. So I'll hold this up here. Now, this is out of print. It, it was originally printed by SUNY, S-U-N-Y, which is State University of New York in 1995. However, it's available on Google Play, they have a free sample you can download. Uh, it's called Rivalry of Genius. And Google Play, you can purchase it for 17 bucks ebook. I say if you're interested in what we talked about today, if you're interested in the larger interaction in what, what Hirschman's calling late antiquity, that's post-destruction of the temple, but up to the rise of Islam, right? We're talking about several hundred years there between the destruction of the temple and the rise of Islam and looking at what he calls a rivalry and he calls it a rivalry of genius is the competition for interpreting the Bible on Jewish sides and rabbinic sides. And so just as an example, he, he compares rabbinic texts with contemporary church father texts. For example, one chapter is, uh, uh, he looks at, Justin Martyr and the dialogue with Trifo, right? So that's actually, that's pretty early. Um, but then he looks at Genesis Rabbah and kind of compares those. And then he looks at excerpts from uh, dialogue with Trifo from the Mechilta, which is Mechilta Rabbi Ishmael. Here's one that's that fits in our topic. Chapter 7 is Passover and the Exodus in Origins writings on one hand and in the rabbinic Midrashim on the other. So what Hirschman is, is doing, what's so important, is to understand that when we read rabbinic midrash, we don't want to just read the midrash and say, oh, this must be background to the stories of Jesus. No, that's what we call anachronism. 
what Hirschman is doing, he's saying, no, you got to look at contemporary, it's like newspapers, right? I, if I look at a newspaper article in the New York Times from, you know, from 1980, I'm not going to compare that with a, with a book written 100 years prior, right? I'm, I want to look at similar reports from the same time frame. Right. That's what he's doing. And so he's gathering somewhat contemporary sources in late antiquity, Christian on one side, Jewish on the other, and comparing them and showing how are they, uh, are they interacting with the same ideas? And are they um, disputing how to interpret the shared ideas? Or are they completely in different worlds? What he's going to show um, is he talks about the rivalry. The idea is that there is knowledge there, there especially in, in the land of Israel, where you've got Christians and Jews in that time, in um, Byzantine era, um, that you have ideas that are traveling back and forth. So anyway, rivalry of genius available. It's out of print. You might find a used copy, but it is available digitally through uh, Google Play. So uh, before we go, I want to answer it's one last question. It's a buyer or a borrow. A buyer or a borrow. Thank you. Before we go, I want to an uh, I want to answer one last question uh, from the chat room. Drew asks, Caleb and Rob, what date do you celebrate Passover? So I celebrate what I believe Yeshua did, and that is, uh, and what I believe the Torah recommends, which is that uh, basically we get the unleavened bread out of our house on the fourteenth by or on the morning of the 14th. It is not a Sabbath on the 14th, obviously. Um, and uh, people are able to buy and sell. We see this even in the uh, in the apostolic writings when Judas stands up to uh, to to go somewhere and they and the disciples think that he's going to buy something before the festival starts. Um, once the sun goes down on the 14th, it is now the 15th of Nisan, which is a which is well, it is a Sabbath. And that is Passover, um, and I think that the Passover, the actual Exodus Passover, um, the slaying of the firstborn happened on at mid around midnight on the night of the fifteenth. That is fourteenth turning into fifteenth. Sun goes down. It's midnight in, of the fifteenth, and uh, the Passover happens. And I think that that is now the the uh, Sabbath, and uh, so our seder is on uh, the night of the fourteenth. Uh, we try to start. Uh, usually in the daytime before the uh, sun is down, as I believe Yeshua did, and I think that that is also provable. And uh, then uh, into the night, just like the Torah prescribes, and uh, of course then uh, Shabbat on the 15th. That's when I sell. And then, of course, you cannot disassociate the Passover. It's, it is my personal belief that you cannot disassociate the Passover uh, and actually, going back to the idea that you can separate Passover from unleavened bread, uh, once again, this doesn't work either, as there are continued Passover sacrifices, which are called the Pascha, even in the in Tanakh, right, yeah. that go all the way through um, uh, the seven days. So in the Tanakh, the word Pascha can refer to Either the first sacrifice on Nisan 14 of the lamb slash goat, depending on what you, what you, or can refer to the Shlemim offerings that are uh, are sacrificed throughout the week of Passover. 
And therefore, the idea that you can separate Passover from unleavened bread, I don't think works not only in the apostolic scriptures, but I think there is proof within the Torah or within the Tanakh itself that these two are not separated, that they are one in the same uh, a festival. And if you would like to uh, know more about that, you can read uh, either my father's uh, second volume of his commentary, second or fourth, maybe it's his fourth, his fourth uh, volume of his commentary on the book of Matthew, or uh, you can also read his, uh, his there's a, a chronology of the passion in the Torah resource articles for free, um, and he lays it out there. You can also get Dr. Brant Peachy's book um, on the Last Supper. Uh, or you can wait until I publish. <laughs> All right. Hey, it's been a fun conversation. Uh, we hope everyone has a wonderful Purim because, uh, yeah, it's a time to be joyous, right? We love it. Um, write us, chagatorresource.com uh, at chagatorresource.com, 253-465-3205. Give us a call. We're just trying to do one thing that's glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah, because Messiah matters. <laughs>